Hi, I'm Dr. Kevin Cheng, founder of Asana, a health service dedicated to transforming lives through prevention. Over the years, I have reflected with colleagues on what we wish people did so they can avoid pain, surgery, or developing a chronic disease. Often the answer lies in embracing a proactive mindset and putting healthy lifestyle practices into action. By doing this, the upside is not only better health, but also saving us time, money, and stress in the long run. In this podcast, I'm joined with my friend Saxon Piggott to chat with a new health expert each week. We'll cover practical ways to look after ourselves, how to prevent illness, and ways we can be inspired to live well. Welcome to Prevention Hacks, the weekly conversation where we go to health experts for advice, so you don't have to. Uh, welcome to Prevention Hacks. We uh, today have a wonderful privilege to invite uh, Dr. James Mickey, who is Australian of the Year 2020. And it's an enormous pleasure to meet you, James, and have you on our podcast. Uh, welcome. Thank you, Kevin. Thank you, Saxon, very much for inviting me to be a part of the podcast today. Very, uh, very excited to be here. Um, we were watching a lot of your um, uh, podcasts, uh, lectures through Zoom. And 2020 has been a, a very different year. Um, describe to us what it's been like and, and I suppose what's been driving your passion to become um, so, um, so, uh, you know, so driven to achieve what you've achieved. Sure, I'm an incredibly exciting beginning of the year, starting at Australia Day weekend and, and receiving that award. Amazing recognition for, I suppose, the work I've been doing, but more importantly for me, the work that Cypol's been doing uh, throughout Asia into Africa now. We're a social impact organisation dedicated to fighting blindness. And so I was really thinking it would be an amazing opportunity to raise awareness of the work that we're doing. Uh, in that first couple of weeks after uh, receiving the award, I uh, booked something like 60 speaking engagements for the year. I was going to be away almost every weekend. And then when the uh, pandemic hit in March, all of those opportunities basically one by one uh, dissolved in front of my face. So it was pretty disheartening at first. But like most of us, I think you know, I had to innovate. I had to, to, to really decide how I was going to continue to try and get my messages out there. And so I created a number of keynote presentations, one about uh, resilience, one about social entrepreneurship, and one about uh, the toxic impact of sugar in our society. And I started reaching out for opportunities, actually. There are a few people that reached out to me, but really everyone was just so dumbstruck by this uh, pandemic that I really just had to look for opportunities to engage in webinars and podcasts. I, I opened up a number of social media accounts and started to get my messages out there. So. I've been working really hard and, and uh, you know, interestingly, it's not as glamorous, of course, as, as flying around the country giving uh, live presentations. And I've only given a half a dozen and most of those have been in the last month or two in Adelaide. But, um, you know, sitting in front of the computer screen, talking to the computer screen is not quite the same as talking to a live audience, of course. But ultimately, I think the reach may be better. And so uh, I had one social media post the other day that, that had 150,000 views. So. You know, I don't think you can achieve that with a live audience. So hopefully the messages are spreading far and wide and, and we'll have some impact by the end of the year. And, and on your question of you know, what's driving me, well, I'm an eye surgeon, obviously, and I've uh, been involved for probably, I've been an eye surgeon for 30 years, to be honest, and, and I've been involved in public health work for, for each of those 30 years, and that's what's driven me to... Uh, found and, and, and continue to run Cyflor and, and the amazing work that we're doing there. 
But uh, back home, you know, just working my clinical practice, I'm just seeing more and more patients who are losing vision, even going blind due to diabetes, particularly type 2 diabetes, which uh, makes up about 90% of cases and is in essence a largely preventable dietary disease. And so seeing patients losing vision, I even had one patient who went blind in both eyes quite literally overnight uh, in 2018. I met him and uh, that really changed my perception. Here I am as, a, as an eye surgeon, seeing the end-stage complications, dealing with the end-stage complications of, of what is uh, a preventable dietary disease, and really not questioning it too much, uh, just feeling that's the responsibility of the GPs, the dietitians, the nutritionists, the, the front uh, frontline workers. And uh, then I started thinking about it a bit more, reading about it a bit more, and, and when I received the South Australian Award, you know, my speech was talking about raising awareness of the fact that Diabetes is the leading cause of blindness amongst working age adults in this country. And the fact that more than half of the 1.7 million patients with diabetes are not having the regular checks. And that's why it's become such a blinding problem in our society. And then leading forward from that, I thought, gee, I don't I have a deeper responsibility as a, as a doctor, uh, as Australian of the Year? We've got a major problem in Australia, a major health problem. I would say a health catastrophe far bigger than in COVID-19, really, this is this is my time to shine a light on this and hopefully make some change. I was listening to um, to your speech on sugar and, and I, I, I heard uh, what you were saying about trying to change those dietary requirements. And I just wonder, have you had any progress on that? How much how much traction are you getting there? Is the government listening? Yeah, actually, I've had a number of meetings with the NHMRC. Uh, I've actually had a meeting with Greg Hunt about a month ago and uh, they're certainly taking it seriously. In fact, I was pushing the NH and NMRC quite significantly. I wrote a, a quite a hard-hitting opinion piece, which went out in the Camera Times in 17 publications around the country, and uh, really, really calling out the dietary guidelines, which I believe are flawed, they're outdated, and they're heavily conflicted by in, uh, industry influence. And then that very same week, Greg Hunt uh, came out saying that they're going to review the dietary guidelines. So I felt that that was a bit of a coup this year. So I was very happy that that's happening. Now, hopefully that'll happen in an appropriate way, be fairly and independently reviewed. And the evidence that they used to inform the guidelines is strong scientific evidence, not weak epidemiological evidence is what is being or what was uh, utilised in the last review, which was back in 2013. Do you think? Do you think it will take? Obviously, the the wheels of government turn slowly. Do you think it will take a, a a long time for for something to happen there? I suspect it'll take some time, and this is a systemic change that's needed. It's not just one thing. It's not just the dietary guidelines, but the dietary guidelines are incredibly powerful. They inform what's eaten in schools, in prisons, in the defence force, in hospitals. They inform childcare and aged care facilities. They also inform our army of health practitioners, dietitians, nutritionists, uh, health policy makers, and actually the food industry. And really on the back of the dietary guidelines, literally thousands of low fat products were created on no evidence whatsoever. And the dietary guidelines continue to demonize natural saturated fat, which still to this day is not being linked to cardiovascular disease. So this is what needs to turn around. This is so important for, for people to be aware. And this is one of the things I've been shouting at quite a lot this year. But there's also a, a number of other, this is really broad, this is not just about the dietary guidelines, it's about this, this systemic situation which uh, is 
happening here in Australia, driven by industry, driven by vested interest, driven by predatory marketing and sales tactics by business and industry. It's a far-reaching thing. So for me, there's two broad elements here. One's awareness, well, actually three broad elements. One's awareness, one's accountability, uh, and one's action. So for me, you know, there's an awareness factor. You may have heard me talking about the five A's of sugar toxicity being addiction, alleviation, accessibility, addition, and advertising. And so for me, awareness personally that sugar is highly addictive and that we're using it to alleviate stress, that's really important for people to know that they can start to actually engage tactics to detox from at least junk food, you know, the really heavily sugared products that we're consuming. Uh, and then the other three A's uh, are really about accountability of businesses and industry particularly, account for predatory tactics I mentioned before, you know, the, the half price uh, soft drinks and chocolates at checkout counters in stores and supermarkets, for example, the ads which are targeted at kids on TV and social media, you know, etc. We can we can go on and on about those. Uh, and also the astronomical amount of, of sugar that's added to our food and drinks in the order of 75%. We have no clear labeling system to, to let people know about these things. And, and then finally, uh, the um, uh, action, which to me is action on the behalf of, of our government to ensure these things happen, you know, ensure that we have a broad, comprehensive public awareness strategy, which informs the public about the multitude of health dangers with sugar, you know, obesity, type 2 diabetes, tooth decay. This is the leading cause of tooth decay in our society. Uh, so this is really important. Also for people who, who develop type 2 diabetes, you know, the horrendous life-changing and life-threatening complications that await them if they don't do something about it. Uh, you know, these things just are not there at the moment. And it's so critical. This is something that's impacting on uh, close to 10% of our population, but there are areas and, 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 and subgroups of society where it's even more powerful. Uh, there are lower socioeconomic areas. Kevin, I think you said you're from, from Sydney, greater Western Sydney, 50% of adults over the age of 24 have prediabetes or type 2 diabetes. That is staggering statistics. In Aboriginal population, this is NAIDOC week, there's been an 80-fold increase in type 2 diabetes over the last 40 years. Again, absolutely concerning. And then we're seeing this disease in children now. In children in Australia as young as seven, there's a three-year-old kid in the United Kingdom, uh, but uh, we have now over 1,100 uh, children and teens in this country with type two diabetes. This was a disease that used to be called maturity onset diabetes. We're seeing it in kids. We have to protect our kids. We have to protect the, the, the next generation. Yeah, it seems like it's too easy to get sugar at the moment. Like you say, at the counters, it's just right there. When you, when you actually start to realise, then you actually see it everywhere and you can't unsee it. You know, you walk into uh, office works, for example, an office or a school supply, you know, the kids are going to get their, their supplies for school and, uh, and parents and the kids have to run the gauntlet of, of confectionery uh, on the way out. So like a, a chicane of, of um, in my local office works store, a chicane of, of uh, uh, skittles and everything else. And uh, yeah, so it's it's everywhere. You, you're at the service station and you're filling up your car, and, and there on the nozzle is an ad two two for the one chocolates. Uh, when you go to pay for your petrol, uh, you're getting a little sugar uh, withdrawal symptom, and you end up buying two chocolates for the price of one and eating both of them before you get home. I've been guilty of that myself. So you know, it's just everywhere when you realise it. It feels like James that um, sugar is the epidemic of our time, arguably. 
and uh, the health system uh, at large when we are trying to tackle these big public health um, challenges. You know, it's almost like pushing uphill. Everything is against us. We've got the, the, the confectionery food industry, as you say, um, trying to change um, the health system, which is very much reactive on demand. So I think out of the total health budget, only about one or one and a half percent is actually used and spent on public health measures. Uh, most of it is actually reactive when people actually get, get sick. And then obviously at an individual level, behaviours are very hard to change as well. What's your advice? How do we overcome the challenges at a, um, at a health system level, but also at an individual level so that we can um, find a path forward? Mm -hmm. uh, and you say behaviours are hard to change, but when you've got a highly addictive product, and it makes it really, really difficult to change. So on a personal level, just being aware of the addictive nature of sugar, I didn't realise until a year ago, and I'm a doctor, I didn't realise that sugar is as addictive as nicotine. It's extraordinarily addictive. And, and to actually detox from sugar is quite tough. It's quite unpleasant. Symptoms start day one, headache, clouded thoughts, irritability, fatigue. Uh, I went through it earlier this year and uh, it lasted for several days. The cravings are intense. But if you realise and actually are serious about it, then you just go through that process. I just popped a couple of Panadols judiciously uh, and uh, just battled through it. And then after day three, I, I was okay. For me, the strategy I used was just simply giving up initially the, the heavily sugared products. So the um, I used to be called, well, I am called the ice cream kid. I was around at my, my in-laws for dinner last night and my mother would always trying to feed me some ice cream after dinner. And she said, come on, James, you're the ice cream kid. You know, I was always the ice cream kid in their household. So for me, giving up ice cream was probably the, the hardest thing to do. Um, uh, and I must say, I haven't given it up completely. Uh, but chocolates, confectionery, uh, biscuits and cakes, soft drinks, fruit juices, you know, a glass of orange juice uh, receives five stars on our health star rating system, has almost as much sugar as a, as a glass of, uh, of cola. Uh, so those are the, the critical things to give up in the first instance, and then be aware of, of the amount of added sugar that's in, in the, the, uh, the drinks and foods that we're consuming. Uh, there are some obvious things which are heavily sugared, like most cereals, uh, condiments and sauces are often packed with sugar. So important to be aware of those. If you're going hard line, that's a whole different story. You know, if you're really scrutinizing every product, then you're really serious about it. and, and uh, the other thing I think it's really important to be aware of is with the addition is that, um, you know, the, the, the labels of the nutritional labels on the packets of foodstuffs often have sugar, other names for sugar. So people are not aware of what those products are, but there are many, many uh, other names and different types of sugars. And they often end in the suffix OSE, so like sucrose, fructose, glucose. So anything with OSE at the end, it's important for people to realize that that is going to be sugar. But also uh, the refined carbohydrates. I think this is a, a big trap for people. These are products such as white flour, white rice, uh, white potatoes, and the foods made from them. Basically, they're pure starch, and starch is simply long chains of glucose, which are broken down into single molecules of glucose when they reach the gut. So pretty much when you're having these products uh, and things made from them, you know, the variety of breads and pastas, you're pretty much having pure sugar. And, and I was looking at a nutritional label the other day on a packet of pasta and it had uh, 3.5 grams of sugar. I thought, that's nah, not too bad. But then it had 67 grams of carbohydrate, which is basically all refined carbohydrates. So that's pretty much a 70% sugar hit. So really important for people to be aware of that. The other thing I think I mentioned before, the second layer of sugar toxicity alleviation, 
the fact that we often use sugar to relieve that stress, it counters the, the stress reaction of cortisol uh, by releasing dopamine. And uh, so rather than reaching for, you know, a block of chocolate, for example, if you're feeling down, why not take a healthier option, such as going for a walk out in nature, uh, listen to your favorite music, um, do a good deed for someone else. These have all been shown to be as effective as sugar in countering that cortisol reaction. So there, there are just a number of, of practical things that people can do. If we then look at the health system, I think you mentioned, uh, we need to, well, the guidelines are being reviewed, they, they desperately need to be reviewed. They're currently, um, the guidelines, the dietary recommendation or the pattern is essentially a high carb, low fat, uh, particularly low a demonized natural saturated fat, as I mentioned before, it's not been linked to cardiovascular disease. So this needs to be reversed. We should be encouraged to minimize the carbs that we're eating and, and at least consume healthy natural saturated fats. Trans fats are another story. Even the polyunsaturated fats are unhealthy. They've been linked to cardiovascular disease, but not the saturated fats. The American Journal of Cardiology recently, the College of Cardiology came out in June um, it was a major systemic review saying that we should be able to eat saturated fat, such as eggs, full fat dairy, dark chocolate, unprocessed meat at will. So, you know, great advice for people to be aware of. Um, the other things, um, I think it's really important for people to realize, uh, you mentioned before that this is a preventable uh, disease, but it's also a potentially reversible disease. Some people prefer the term putting type 2 diabetes into remission. So it's critical for people to be aware of that. You know, I've been speaking to a number of my patients recently uh, who I'm treating for diabetic retinopathy, the blinding consequences of it on the eyes, and, and just quizzing them as your, as your doctor ever talks to you about, or your dietitian about uh, the fact that this disease can be put into remission. And none of them, none of them were aware of it. Uh, and so this is something that's such a critical thing for people to be aware of. There are now over a hundred controlled clinical trials showing that type two diabetes can be put into remission. And, and Dr. David Unwin from the United Kingdom uh, just this month has released his data, uh, a two year data showing 46%, so nearly half of his patients in his general practice, he's got no conflicts of interest, were able to put their type two diabetes in remission and that was able to, uh, to persist. So. This is really important information that, that needs to be built into the system as well, so that GPs, uh, endocrinologists, dietitians, nutritionists can comfortably actually then recommend this to their patients that they shouldn't be eating by the dietary guidelines and they can actually reverse uh, or remit their type two diabetes. Uh, at the moment, even the most recent uh, uh, guidebook released by the Royal Australian College of GPs uh, says there's no evidence to say that um, you know, remission is, is something that's viable. But as I've said to you, there is significant evidence there. So this absolutely needs to change so that GPs can go into this feeling that they're doing the right thing rather than going against the guidelines of the guidebooks that are put out to them. So uh, very, very important. Um, and also, so the GPs and dietitians need to support it in this process. And the patients also need to be supported through this process as well. So really, um, really important uh, information that needs to be built into this systemic change and this awareness raising. So it's not just patients, it's, it's health practitioners as well. Absolutely. I mean, that's such an important message. And 
we often characterize diabetes amongst the, the category of chronic health conditions that are lifestyle driven. And once you get it, you get a label and it's about slowing that progression down. But the whole um, mindset around it being reversible or getting to remission uh, is tremendous. It's a very different approach. It gives a lot of patients hope um, and that, you know, if they can uh, adjust their lifestyles, they can make a big uh, difference to where they end up uh, over, over time. Um, and so what, what would be the two or three things that you would want all uh, patients who are pre-diabetes or have diabetes to be thinking about um, to, to really you know, embed into their daily living? Yeah, sure. So some of the things we mentioned before about, about awareness, about the addictive nature and the fact that they're using it to alleviate stress. So rather than uh, you know, reaching for a chocolate bar or giving yourself a treat if you've done a, you know, a big day's work, take the healthier options, that's really critical. Um, just be aware of, of the, the sugary products you're consuming. Uh, I mean, exercise is good. I think exercise is critical to our health and particularly our mental health, but a lack of exercise doesn't cause type two diabetes. But I think it's important to continue exercise. And, and fasting, I think it's actually a critical thing as well. And uh, uh, I do what, what's called a 16 8 fast. So basically it means not having breakfast, which is not a, a major deal. And after a week or so, you just get used to it. I used to have a bowl of cereal every morning to start the day. That's basically just a sugar sugar hit, which is quickly metabolized and you're hungry again by mid morning and then you're starting to look for snacks and I'd go to the tea room and get cream, cream biscuits. And so it's really important to have, uh, I I'd say breakfast is not important. There's no evidence to say that we need breakfast. Um, the phrase breakfast is the most important meal of the day was actually invented by John Harvey Kellogg when he was trying to market his uh, brand new breakfast cereal cornflakes at the turn of the last century. So there's no evidence to say that we need to have cereal for breakfast. It's just uh, ridiculous. So, but when you, you know, have your meal and you have your lunch, have the healthy, natural, saturated fat, say, they're more, uh, you know, they create better satiety so you feel fuller for longer and that will take you through till dinner time. So, you know, we can, we can talk about this uh, for hours really. But, uh, I, but think I like those, I like those key messages. I mean, the, it, these, these, um, these uh, ways of thinking, our behaviours are so entrenched, aren't they? And, and um, you know, sharing that uh, sugar is addictive, that we get addicted very early. I read somewhere that, um, compared to a generation ago, you know, the uh, average Australian would get their lifetime worth of sugar by the time they're eight or 10 years old. And then they're on this kind of pathway to continual high sugar intake or required carbohydrate intake. Um, and then just being aware to break that cycle is, is a tremendous message to be sharing. Interestingly, it's the only uh, drug and it's a toxin and it's an addictive drug that we give to, to infants. So, you know, figure that really. Oh. Uh, I was interested as well that um, that skinny people can be get it can be prone to getting diabetes too. That kind of worried me because I used to be skinny. I'm not as skinny as I once was, but um, I do eat quite a bit of sugar at work. Um, and I was I was just wondering um, what are the signs? What should people be looking out for if they think perhaps they might be at risk? Yeah, sure. So so obesity is the biggest risk factor for type two diabetes, but it's just a marker for poor metabolic health. Only a marker. So interestingly, in the United States, there are actually more thin metabolically unhealthy people than there are fat metabolically unhealthy people. And I suspect the same is going on here in Australia. So obesity of itself is not the real problem here. It's not even the amount of calories we're consuming, it's the type of calories, and it's particularly the 
the sugar and particularly the very toxic element, the, the fructose, which is really critical. And if we, we look at the fact that Australians, uh, two thirds of Australian adults over the age of 24, or more than two thirds, are overweight or obese. And, and close to a third of children are overweight or obese. So the vast majority of us are not metabolically healthy. So you can see I'm, I'm pretty thin. Uh, and earlier this year, I was having a scan of my abdomen for something. And I found out that I have a fatty liver and a fatty liver is one of the uh, sort of key elements to, to um, type 2 diabetes and insulin resistance within the liver. So uh, I'm what they call toffee, thin on the outside, fat on the inside, and it's the fatty liver, which is a real problem here. So uh, often difficult for people to know, uh, simply if they are aware that they're actually consuming far too much sugary products and refined carbohydrates, they could, I mean, I think once you get to a certain age, certainly 40, you should probably be seeing your GP on a regular basis, making sure you're having regular blood sugar levels. And what will show up before raised blood sugar levels, so once the blood sugar level starts to go up, you move into pre-diabetes and then type 2 diabetes, but actually the insulin level will show up as being raised before the blood sugar. But perhaps even before that, having an ultrasound of the liver, if you're concerned, that will pick up whether you've got a fatty liver, and that will certainly... I'd like to think, uh, inspire people to try and, and uh, prevent themselves going into pre-diabetes and then type 2 diabetes and all the horrendous complications that that entails, not just the complications, um, but the expense, uh, the phenomenal expense, the annual expense every year and the, and the embarrassment and the stigma and the, and the, um, the shame that goes along often with type 2 diabetes, also the, the mental health issues that come along with it. So, it's a devastating disease that impacts every single organ in the body and our mental health. When I um, ran a diabetes project around Australia, we worked with uh, Dr. Paul Simmet, who was considered Mr. Diabetes Australia, um, did a lot of work in um, uh, the sort of Pacific Islands as well, raising awareness. Um, just the challenge of uh, you know, the overlap with depression and diabetes, um, that's well documented. And then the cost, as you say, not only in terms of the physical cost, but the financial cost. Uh, I think last, um, this might be a few years old, but the, the cost of managing a diabetes, a person with diabetes, no complications, is there about three, three and a half thousand dollars in the system every year. And then um, that cost goes to $10,000 if you have uh, complications. And so uh, enormous, and, and by that stage, it can be quite, quite late in, in the piece to be managing amputations, heart attacks, and um, eye and kidney disease. So it, it's such an important message to get in there early. It's a tragedy, isn't it? We're uh, back in 2012, I think it was 14.6 billion every year spent in Australia alone. I suspect that's up to about the 20 billion dollar a year mark. That's for the treatment of type or diabetes and its complications and lost productivity in the work workforce. But if you actually realise that uh, diabetes, and particularly type two diabetes, plays a critical role in top three killers in our society, being heart attack, dementia, and stroke. It also plays a critical role in hypertension and hypertension is the biggest risk factor for heart attack and also in cancer as well. So this may well be the biggest killer, if not the biggest killer in, in, in our midst. And I suspect as a result of it, metabolic dysfunction, uh, then we are probably spending far more than, than $20 billion, probably close to $100 billion every year as a result of our toxic intake of sugar and, and uh, excess carbs in our society. And also, we can throw into that the seed oils uh, that uh, are highly toxic and, and inflammatory and are found in abundance, as is sugar, in uh, highly processed, ultra-processed foods. 
so many of those are not well known as well. Um, I mean, there's such a connotation that salt drives um, blood pressure rather than sugar. Um, you know, that uh, cholesterol leads to heart disease rather than, rather than sugar uh, and dementia as well. So, so many messages that, you know, hark back to the importance of sugar. My question would be, James, why now? You know, we've, we've, um, the evidence has been building over, over recent years um, and uh, everything is uphill and working against industry um, in many ways, working against the, the mindsets and behaviours of our health system. Um, why is it so important to, to act now? And, and also, have we seen good efforts overseas that has worked? Who's leading in this space? Yeah, this, this is, as I mentioned, the systemic change. When I received the award earlier in the year, I talked about a multi-pronged strategy, which really dealt with the five A's of sugar toxicity. Uh, more recently, I've been talking about the dietary guidelines and, and remission and reversibility of type 2 diabetes. So this is something that, that needs to be approached in a broad and comprehensive strategy. I was in Canberra, political journalists, uh, after the Australia Day weekend, so they all were talking about Dr. Mugi calling for a sugar tax, and this is just one of many, many strategies. But why now? 1.7 million people with type 2 diabetes, some parts of the country where um, half of the adult population are at serious risk. We have 2 million people in this country with pre-diabetes now, so about 15% of the country in its entirety has pre-diabetes or type 2 diabetes, and the majority of those will probably go on and develop type 2 diabetes in the coming uh, in the coming decade. So this is something that is continu continuing to grow, and yet highly preventable, potentially reversible. Why not? And costing ourselves, uh, it's going to bankrupt some small countries. Uh, it seems the cost is going to get more and more expensive. The cost is on the taxpayer for the most part. Uh, and, and, and me as a doctor, and yourself as a doctor, Kevin, to see patients suffering. Uh, the guy I mentioned before, I think, uh, who woke up blind in both eyes, has now had nine amputations and two heart attacks. His life has been devastated, also the life of his family as a result of his disease. This is a far-reaching, uh, far, uh, hugely impactful disease and, and also impacting on, on, on doctors and health practitioners who are working in this field. You know, to see every day the complications and the devastation of this disease. Wow, you know, smoking, I think, was was small in comparison to this, and it took decades to reverse the smoking problem. This was that was one essentially one one substance. Here we have sugar, and so this also reflects sugar cane farming and the sugar industry. It, it affects uh, the processed food industry, it affects the beverages industry, um, the uh, the cereal and grains industry, this is a, such a far-reaching problem. So the vested interests are immense, they're broad and deep. And so the, the conflicts that are constantly coming up against are huge. And this is why it's so difficult for government to act, because uh, it means potentially jobs, potentially income, revenue, uh, and potentially votes in marginal seats. So it's just a difficult thing that's going to take a long, long time. But uh, I like to think by the end of the year, I would have made some impact if I can have the dietary guidelines reviewed in a fair and independent way. I'm on the National Diabetes Strategy Expert Advisory Group, and I'm calling strongly to have remission put down as a major goal. I've got a meeting later today about this uh, in another meeting with the uh, advisory group in a couple of weeks. Absolutely, remission to be a major goal on this strategy. So that will give uh, GPs and health practitioners the comfort that they can move forward and do this and, and not be um, potentially 
uh, run into trouble with their regulatory authority if they do. So, you know, all, all of these things are, are so important. Well, uh, James, look, uh, that's probably time. And um, maybe just the last question is, um, and you've partly answered it, what is, what is success? Um, in Play Forward three to five years time, uh, what would you like to be the things that have um, arisen out of um, the, the campaign at the moment uh, for yourself? Sure, okay, uh, three to five years time, let's say I want to see a dietary guideline which no longer demonizes natural saturated fat. That, that Diabetes Australia and all the Diabetes Association currently are saying eat by the Australian Dietary Guidelines. They're actually recommending people with diabetes eat a high carb diet. It just makes no sense. So to have a, a Dietary Guidelines which is appropriate and, and strongly evidence-based, I think it would be great. I want remissibility uh, or reversibility of type 2 diabetes to be absolutely on the, the agenda and in the guidebook that's been released by the General Practitioner College, uh, which supports health practitioners and supports GPs and their patients to actually be able to do this. So we, we need um, the College of General Practitioners, the Australian Medical Association to take this on board and just be part of mainstream medical practice. And uh, so I think we need a broad and highly visible public, highly visible public awareness strategy basically run by the government that we can see on free-to-air TV and across social media, warning people repeatedly, not just little one-off uh, snippets, um, but warning people repeatedly about the dangers of excessive sugar consumption uh, and processed food consumption and the complications of type 2 diabetes. And I think the other thing is the predatory marketing and sales tactics employed by business and industry should no longer be permitted. That, that should be banned so that we have a a systemic change which supports uh, the whole population from uh, the health practitioners through to their patients, through to the general public, uh, and also supports um, the environment because when people have an addictive tendency or if they are physically dependent on, on sweet products, when you have an environment which is flooded with, with sugary products, it's really hard to resist, as you said before. So, you know, we just need an, a systemic change, which is just uh, immense and uh, far-reaching. That's true, minutes. Sorry, Kev, you go. No, I was just going to say thank you. Um, I mean, we really need to change the way we live um, in Australia I, is, is partly my takeaway. Um, I just wanted to say thank you for your leadership and, and for this crusade. We're going to be following uh, in your footsteps and and leading the change uh, as well um, at the front line. Thanks. Yeah, thank you. It was really great to talk to you. And and I'm a convert. I'm off sugar. The the lolly bowl at work. I'm going to avoid from now on. Yeah. So there shouldn't be a lolly bowl at work anymore. Uh, really. Yeah, that's that's three o'clock in the afternoon. Everybody's hitting it. Yeah. Yeah. That's because they're they're going through their sugar withdrawal. But uh, that that shouldn't be there. The vending machines shouldn't be there in universities and hospitals. So all of these things need to be be changed. It's part of the systemic change, isn't it? I'm going to spread the word. Anyway. I, I don't think I'll be popular at first, but I'm going to I'm going to do a presentation. Yeah, I don't think I'm popular. I think I'm probably going to be the Australian of the Year at the end of the year that no one likes. <laughs> I don't think that's true. <laughs> Thank you again, James. Okay, guys. Nice. To see you. Thanks so much. Thanks, Thank James. You.